3: Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions.
4: Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing, but without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening.
3: Last time on Forgotten.
4: I would run
1: around the house and shout her name with all my strength. In the silence of the night,
5: I felt she could hear me, so I would call to my daughter. The authorities have the responsibility for solving these crimes. They have not done this, and perhaps never intended to do it. I pick it up, and then all of a sudden, there's this electric saw sound coming in. They took my phone. Uh, to try and see they could trace that call and they traced it back to Mexican military intelligence.
3: Diana was disconcerted by that threatening call but it wasn't immediately clear just how frightening it really was.
4: How long after you received that call did your source trace it back?
5: Within a month. You know, first, I wasn't sure what to do with that phone call, and I casually mentioned uh, to this, uh, this officer. And uh, he said, You know, what can, can we have your telephone to check it out? That's true.
3: Tracing that call back helped Diana understand that the threats against her were not idle. And then she got a visit.
5: A friendly source came over one time to El Paso, and we met for coffee, and the source was told to convey to me after this source met with um, three police officers in Juarez, municipal, state, and federal. And the message to me was not to bother to come to Juarez. All right. So I think that was a very good indicator that uh, I needed to start back in Hawaii,
3: yeah. Diana tracks the escalation of the threats to starting to publish articles about the connection between the victims and the Echo Computer Schools. The computer schools suggested that some kind of network was involved in these crimes, and the threats suggested that the authorities might be protecting the network. But all of this time, the Egyptian chemist Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif had been languishing in jail, accused of being the serial killer, and continuing to mastermind murders from jail. As far as the authorities, and even some of the local press were concerned, the case was closed. Then. In 2001, something happened that made it clear the crimes were not just ongoing, but escalating. The
5: Mexican press had decided that the big nightmare of the femicides had ended. And I remember one of the reporters in Juarez who had covered the murders uh, from the very beginning uh, turning to me at a press conference, saying to me, your problem, Diana, is that you do not believe that the Egyptian Sharif Sharif killed all those women and it's over. It's ended, all right? I just looked at him, you know, and I started to think, well, perhaps he's right, maybe it's over. And then a month later, eight bodies are discovered and everybody like, my God, this is like starting over again.
3: For the first time in five years, a mass grave of women had been discovered in Juarez. And even Diana was shocked.
5: I remember it was in El Paso at the time. There was a report about bodies had been discovered, women's bodies had been discovered. This is horrible. Not only is it just one more murder, it's eight bodies planted in one place. What is happening to our young ladies?
3: The horrific discovery at the cotton field came at a time when Diana still believed it was safe for her to travel to Juarez. So as soon as she heard about it, she jumped in her car and headed for the border.
5: First of all, I had to figure out where this place was. Well, I imagined something on the edge of a city. And so when I got directions and I saw where this graveyard was located, I said, oh, I can't believe it. It's in the middle of a city. And across the street is the Association of Maquiladoras, the organization that represents all the assembly plans in Ciudad Juarez. It's in the middle of a very active commercial zone next to housing development. I just couldn't believe it. Somebody has to have seen something. Why choose this site to dump, literally dump, eight bodies of women?
3: This was November 2001. Just nine months earlier, in February, Lily Alejandra had been abducted and murdered. And because of the witnesses and the physical evidence from the autopsy, Diana believed there were enough leads to finally solve the murders. That didn't happen. But now there were eight bodies in a well-trafficked part of town known locally as the Cotton Field, just two miles from where Lily Alejandra's body had been found. The Cotton Field discovery ignited a global interest in solving the murders. ABC News did a special edition of 2020, and the eyes of the world were on Juarez.
5: The Cotton Field murders presented an opportunity for the authorities to conduct a good and thorough investigation that leads to the killers I solve these cases and maybe prevent
4: more I'm Osvalo and I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe
3: This is Forgotten
4: The Women of Juarez Voy a crear un canto para poder existir
3: para mover la tierra los <laughs> hombres y sobrevivir Yo no nada With the cotton field's discovery, Diana felt like the murders might finally be solved. The pressure was building. The mother's protest movement had new urgency. The international press was demanding answers. And her trusted source, Oscar Maynez, was once again overseeing the crime scene.
6: I mean, if you have eight bodies in an area, you cannot deny seriality in these murders. It's not a chance that they appear <laughs> eight bodies next to each other, you know.
4: Had you ever seen anything like that when you stepped out onto this cotton field and, and, and saw the bodies?
6: Well, I've seen many bodies not in the same area. For me, it was a highly organized crime. You can see it. Like, and, and when you're talking about organization, you're talking about a group. If you have a group, you have a leader. If you have a leader, you have a hierarchy, you have resources. So this is not like a lone wolf or a couple of kids.
3: When Oscar first began overseeing the autopsies of young women in Juarez, he believed that a serial killer, in the vein of a Ted Bundy, was responsible. But after Lily Alejandra's autopsy, he began to suspect something more organized perhaps even a group. We drove out to the cotton field with Oscar to learn more about a crime scene that seemed to confirm his theory.
6: Um, he's surrounded by hotels, uh, businesses. He's close to the new American consulate. Um, he has some uh, commercial business next to it. Were you very shocked when you, when you
3: heard where these bodies were?
6: Yes, because I was expecting to find the bodies on the Oscar of the city that is in the middle of the city. There was this dry dish and uh, there were three bodies positioned in line. And then we started just looking around and then we started lifting rocks and then we found five more bodies. Those were buried, they were not out in the open.
3: Oscar had been sounding the alarm and now multiple bodies have been discovered in a single location. He was determined to make sure the forensic work was unimpeachable, to demonstrate once and for all how all these crimes were connected.
6: It was like an archaeologist you know, with uh, brushes slowly clearing the, the dirt in order to preserve the skeletons. Because when you have just uh, skeletons to work with, you need to look at every aspect, every lesion of the virus to, to try to determine the cause of death.
4: So. And then how long did that process
6: take, like an hour? No, no, this take a couple of days, and night and day.
3: How did this discovery compare to, say, the discovery of the body of Lily Alejandra?
6: Well, the case of Lili Alejandra, it was the same pattern. I believe that those cases were related.
3: Same people killed her. This was a bombshell to me, Monica. I mean, Lilia Alejandra's autopsy had suggested all these leads that weren't properly followed up on. And here you have this crime scene that suggests Oscar and Diana were absolutely right to insist on the importance of Lilia's case. How did the crime scene first emerge?
2: It
4: was a Tuesday morning, November 6th, 2001. And there was a man who worked as a bricklayer. He was taking a shortcut across a vacant lot uh, not far from a main intersection in a commercial area of Juarez. And he told the local newspaper that he smelled something funny and went in for a closer look. And that's when he saw the body of a woman. And so he goes and he alerts the police who show up and find two more bodies. By the time the forensic team is on the scene, there's a total of eight bodies. They show various stages of decomposition. Some look like they've been dead for perhaps a couple of weeks, and others for as much as a few months. And one of the bodies is naked, except for a pair of torn white socks. And just like the other cases before, her hands are tied behind her back with shoelaces. It appeared that this body had been kept in cold storage.
3: The fact that it's a place which people pass through often and then all of a sudden this guy finds the bodies, it it feels like they probably weren't there all along.
4: Right, someone would have noticed them. The fact that they show up all at once, you know, kind of points to the strong possibility that they were placed there at the same time.
3: And what do we know about who these eight victims were?
4: Yeah, so the first body that the bricklayer discovered was identified as 15-year-old Esmeralda Herrera Monreal. Esmeralda's family came from the state of Zacatecas. Her mom worked at a Phillips factory in Juarez. And Esmeralda, at the time, she was saving up money for her quinceañera to save up money for this party, Esmeralda starts working as a housekeeper. And like so many others, she goes to work one day and is never seen again. Diana interviews Esmeralda's mother, Irma, at some point. And one of the eerie details that surfaces from that interview is that an Echo recruiter had stopped by their neighborhood and left them a brochure at their house. Some of the connections between these women are chilling, uncanny even. Another woman who's identified from the cotton field is a 20-year-old woman named Claudia Yvette Gonzalez. And Claudia worked at a maquila owned by Lear Corporation. So the day Claudia went missing, she showed up to work a few minutes late. And the factory turned her away. After that, she was never seen again. You have all these details that point to a connection, that point to an organized network behind these killings.
3: We'd heard about the shoelaces from Lily Alejandra's autopsy. We'd heard about the connection to the Echo computer schools. And we'd heard about victims being snatched at moments of maximum vulnerability just like Claudia Yvette, who was turned away from the maquila for being late and then found herself alone on the streets of Juarez. The crime scene seemed to confirm so much of the evidence that had already piled up about how these crimes were connected. Then something truly extraordinary happened. Just days after the bodies were found, two suspects confessed to all eight murders at the cotton fields. About every month we would snatch them,
7: a total of eight. Well, take them by force, rape them, and later, strangle them.
3: That is a translation of a video made by the Juarez police in which two men confessed to the murders of those eight women. It appears to be a decisive break in the case. When we come back, we find out who they are.
1: And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
9: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com iHeart. That's lifelock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: After the cotton field's mass grave was discovered, two men confessed to the murders. They were bus drivers, Gustavo González Meza, known as La Foca, or The Seal, and Javier García Uribe, known as El Serio, The Match. Their job was to drive the young women who worked in factories to and from work. Bus drivers had access and opportunity to identify when a young woman like Sagrario González started to commute alone. So the suspects seem plausible, but were they actually responsible? Well, when the mass grave was discovered and the suspects confessed, Hardrick Crawford was the FBI special agent in charge of El Paso. His office was just a few miles away from the site of the mass grave, and he'd taken a special interest in the murders of women in Juarez and was following this case closely as a potential breakthrough.
10: You could sense that the pressure was mounting Political pressure, public pressure, international pressure. The families and relatives and friends of the disappeared women, they were loud. Those women would hold marches, mourning the deaths and drawing attention to that. That was huge. There was a crescendo, it was building. The international community was fully aware. So the pressure must have been enormous on the other side of the border, politically.
3: It was in this context that the office of the attorney general, known as the PGR, produced two suspects. I remember the PGR announced they had made arrest. The bus drivers.
10: The bus drivers, yes, that's them. The bus drivers, and they showed the bus drivers, they had them in custody, and so I have my agents come in. All right, give me the real story, and uh, we see what's on there.
3: So immediately you thought this is,
10: yes. I. I wasn't sure I was thinking 70 30 it's BS (laughs) in favor of the BS and so I wanted the agents tell me what's going on they said hey boss I said says they confessed he said boss uh don't ask us where we got this but these are photos of their their torsos and I said well what are those what are those round circle marks burn marks they said that's cattle prods boss so forget those confessions I said, oh, my God. Okay, so they're under pressure to solve the crime, and so they tortured the confessions. I said, yeah. Well, I'm not one to laugh because many uh, African-American was tortured in the Deep South to confess the crimes that he didn't do. Because of that, I know full well, it's not reliable when you torture somebody.
3: In the very moment that it seemed most likely that the crimes could finally be solved two innocent men had been coerced into taking the fall. In the video, produced in-house by the Juarez Police Department, the bus drivers appeared dazed, and later they managed to get in front of the media themselves and show the world what had happened to them. One had a knee swollen to several times its normal size. There were those burn marks that Hardrick described, and there were also allegations of suffocation and waterboarding. So a few years before, Monica Sharif had been pinned with these crimes. Why did the authorities go to such lengths with the bus drivers?
4: Every time a mass grave is turned up in Juarez of women's bodies, it's been a turning point for the city. And it's been a moment when suddenly people paid attention and there was great fear. The police can sort of sweep these individual murders under the rug up until the point where these mass graves are discovered. So they had to do something to show they were taking these crimes seriously, because rightly so, the community was terrified. The first discovery of a mass grave happened in late summer of 1995. There were nine bodies found in a deserted terrain in the southern outskirts of Juarez, not far from the airport, in a plot of land called Lote Bravo. And bravo in Spanish means wild or untamed. Two months later, Sharif is arrested. He was declared as a primary suspect in the women's murders. And when he was questioned about this, he was stunned. He told the Washington Post, I've hung around with a lot of prostitutes and drunks and topless dancers. I'm not proud of it. I'll admit to my sins, but I never killed anybody. Sharif is the perfect scapegoat, given his outsider status and his violent criminal history. The police kept building up cases against him that were subsequently thrown out in court until he died in jail in 2006. In 1995,
3: the first mass grave of women in Juarez was discovered, and shortly afterwards, Sharif was jailed. In 1996, another mass grave of women was discovered, and the authorities claimed Sharif was orchestrating the murders from prison to prove his innocence using a gang called the Rebeldes. Now, it was 2001 and another mass grave had been discovered. And even before seeing the images of torture, Diana believed that the process of scapegoating that usually followed such a discovery was happening all over again.
5: They were obviously given the script. They seemed uh, frightened to me. You know, to just nonchalantly admit to eight murders is, is quite a feat. And that, again, spoke to the idea that, here we go again, scapegoats, all right? They have the boilerplate language. Somebody is in charge of writing out the, the novella of how this is going to play out. You know, someone in law enforcement, and here's what you're going to say, and period. It was just a matter of, like, two days after the human remains were gathered, and taken to the morgue, and already they had two men that the authorities said were responsible, two bus drivers. And we saw that as very suspicious. I mean, how can you have suspects already?
3: Five days after the bodies had been discovered at the cotton field, Diana attended a press conference where she got a sickening sense that history was repeating itself.
5: One of the reporters from has asked the state attorney general, Jesus Chito Solis, hey, is it possible that Shadif is involved in, in these murders too? And he turned to the rest of the reporters, uh, the state attorney general, and said, you know, we're looking into that. Here we go again. We they have the perfect scapegoat. He's been in jail this whole time. And they may try to find a way to link him to these bus drivers, and then the bus drivers, of course, to the eight murders of these young women.
3: Yeah. One of the things you can't fail to notice in Juarez is buses. Often repurposed American school buses, which are everywhere, and which are used um, to transport maquila workers to and from their jobs. Monica, when you and I went to downtown Juarez, we went to Mina Street, which is where many of the young women were last seen alive, but also the central bus exchange in Juarez. So it's easy to see how bus drivers might have had the access or the opportunity to kidnap, abduct, and kill women. How much of that drove the authorities' decision to focus on these two men?
4: There is evidence to support the notion that the victims were scouted and selected. In the same way, it appears the scapegoats were also scouted and selected because they themselves had vulnerabilities that made them less able to defend themselves. And why bus drivers? Well, it so happened that before the cotton fields, a woman had survived an attack by a bus driver on her way home from work. And so bus drivers were already seen as an enemy in the public's eye. And so police just kind of picked up on that thread and arrested two more bus drivers saying, these guys are responsible for the deaths of those women found dumped in the cotton field. You could say they were easy targets, just like Sharif. We don't hear as much about the individuals who are falsely accused of committing the crimes. and. One of those who was accused was the bus driver named Javier García Uribe. No relation to me. I went digging through news archives around the time they were arrested, and I came across this article written by a reporter named Minerva Canto, and she traveled to Juarez and spent several days with the bus driver's wife. Her name is Miriam García. The couple, they have two children, and so one night in 2001, all of a sudden, they are surrounded by armed men whose faces are covered with Halloween masks, and they threaten Javier, Miriam, and their two kids, and eventually take Javier, stuff him in a car, and take him away. While Miriam protests, but she's really helpless to do anything, these men are armed. She spends the next three days desperately searching for her husband, just like the mothers are searching for the daughters. The next time that Miriam sees her husband is on television, confessing to the murder of these eight women who were found in the cotton field. Miriam, just like Paula, she's desperate to come to the rescue of her husband, who she firmly believes is being scapegoated. On one of the governor's visits to Juarez, she manages to push her way to the front of the crowd and denounces her husband's arrest and pleads with the governor, show me one shred of evidence, one shred of evidence to prove my husband's guilt. And she's surrounded and moved away from the governor. Just the brazenness by which this is all playing out that inspires this passion and these rage and these loved ones that are like, how dare you, how dare you? And they call him out in these very passionate public ways.
3: All of this scapegoating raises a very serious question. Why would the authorities do it? Were they trying to protect the real killers all along? And if so, how could the killers have so much power over the authorities? When we come back, we hear from Oscar Minez about some strange details of the Cottonfield crime scene that revealed the extent of what the killers might be capable of. And Hardrick Crawford takes the case to the very top of the FBI.
7: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
1: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.
3: In Juarez, the women's murders and scapegoating seemed to be two sides of the same coin. But not every official was content to let the true killers go free. And before the bus drivers confessed, Oscar Maynez was generating some telling leads at the crime scene about a sinister network responsible for the murder.
6: We started working on a Thursday. By Sunday, the attorney general of the state. Gave a press interview saying that he had uh, apprehended the murders and that all the victims had been identified. I said, what? I mean, we're just in the process of... I mean, those are not the guys. This is not the profile I'm looking for. It was
3: clear from Diana's reporting that at least one of the ways the victims were selected using the ECHO computer schools was highly methodical. And Oscar saw clear signs that the way the women in the cotton field had been killed and dumped was also organized. Who could be capable of these kinds of crimes? And why would they leave bodies in such a brazen spot? Those were the questions on Oscar's mind as he worked the crime scene. Then, all of a sudden, he became aware of something suspicious and disconcerting.
6: I noticed that there were these men with nice cars, clean and shaved and everything, in Bermudas, and they were very happy. I mean, they seemed suspicious, I mean. These people were too quickly to arrive there.
3: And if you had to guess who they
6: were? These people, they don't have like a nine-to-five job in that, you know, and it's like, so I don't know.
3: The fact that these sharply dressed men could turn up to the crime scene suggested they didn't have an office job or a factory job. And Oscar wanted to know more about who they
6: might be. I took pictures with a telescopic lens and I took the photographs of the license plates. Like I said, there are leads that you follow.
3: For reasons that will become clear, Oscar wasn't able to follow up on that lead, but the men weren't the only unexplained presence at the crime scene.
6: There were a lot of areas of research in this case that could have led to something relevant. What was the most promising? I believe there was connection with some construction companies because the second group of bodies, the ones who were buried, they were buried under rubble. And it was enough material to cover the bodies. You need like a dump truck to do that. The people who do this have access to equipment for a construction company. You can identify that where the rubble came from.
3: The cotton field had so many promising leads. The connection between the victims, the license plates of the men who turned up at the crime scene. And then there's this rubble from a construction site. But the authorities never pursued those lines of investigation because the bus drivers had already confessed. Then the crime scene gets even weirder. The families and their demand for justice and Monica are one of the key engines that keeps pressure up on the authorities in Juarez. What do the families do about this crime scene?
4: Three months after the cotton field discovery, a group of American volunteers and international reporters went back to the scene of the crime to do a sweep at the request of the families. One of those volunteers was an American professor who describes how they lined up and combed the lot in one long single row. They carried sticks with pointed ends and were instructed to put anything they found in a plastic bag. And it turns out they found quite a lot. Women's underwear, book bags, purses, a high-heeled shoe, clumps of hair. But the most significant thing they found that day was a pair of overalls. A teenage boy found them in a plastic bag and one of the mothers saw them and she ran over there and took those overalls in her arms. It turns out they belonged to her daughter, Claudia, who was turned away from the maquila for being late. One of the students captured that moment in a photograph. It shows this mother sobbing, clutching the overalls, embracing them as if they were her daughter. What's odd about this sweep is that it happens three months after the bodies were discovered and nobody has been able to explain how those items got there, especially the overalls, and how they could have been there this whole time without anybody discovering them sooner.
3: This wasn't the first time evidence had turned up in suspicious circumstances. In the days after the cotton field discovery, Oscar Maynez received a surprise visit.
6: Uh, agent comes to my office and says, I need you to put this in the evidence of the case. And I said, no, this is an order by the attorney general. I said, no, if he wants to do it, I ask him to send Breed order.
3: Oscar was being asked to plant evidence by a state official and he was pushing back.
4: What evidence was he asking you
6: to plant? Apparently there were drugs and probably hairs. I didn't even open the bag because when the attorney general gave the press conference, he said that these bus driver were drug addicts and they have found evidence in the van that the girls have been abducted there with the van. I believe it was drugs and then some kind of evidence connecting the disease to the vehicle.
3: Whoever it is who doesn't want the truth of these murders to come to light won't stop at death threats or even torture. They also seem to have some sort of sway over the police and the attorney general's office. And Oscar's resistance wasn't going unnoticed.
6: I mean, I received threats. I was careful. I didn't went to at night during that time. I'm just, you know, but I didn't study or prepare to you know what I mean? It's like... Uh, but
4: Oscar, the way you tell this to us, you say it como que very nonchalantly.
6: Well, at that time I was very angry. I don't tend to get scared, I tend to get angry. So I was very angry. And when you're angry, you don't stop to think clear of the consequences.
3: Why was it important to you to put your, your job uh, at the least and at the most your safety on the line in this particular case?
6: I mean, that's because my job is to get to the truth of the case. And also, if we're talking about a serial killer or killers or a group uh, acting in this way, if you close the case with a scapegoat, this is not the end of it. I mean, it's going to continue and continue and continue.
4: But the order was coming from a powerful place. And when you don't obey those who are politically powerful, you tend to suffer the consequences. Yeah, I, I mean I,
6: I had to. I quit. I tried to protect the file when the file went to the judge. It's more difficult to manipulate. That's when I decided to present my resignation letter. But like I said, I was out anyways. It was a matter of minutes, probably.
3: Oscar held firm, not just because of principle, but for very practical purposes. He knew the bus drivers would have to be tried, and he wanted to make it as hard as possible to secure a conviction, hoping that that would force the authorities to lead a real search for the guilty parties.
6: If you see the file, the original file, there is not a single evidence that connects the bus drivers to the crime. There is no evidence that the victims that the state says the bodies belong to. There's no proof of that. And the only proof you find is that these guys were tortured. That was a fact, even though it was clearly a case that was uh, manipulated by the state.
3: Even though Oscar was essentially forced to resign within days of the discovery of a crime scene that he felt could finally have exposed who was killing the woman in Juarez, his protection of the bus driver's file... His refusal to plant evidence was consequential. It made the state's case much harder to prove, especially when a prominent father and son team of lawyers, Mario Escobedo Sr. and Jr., took them on as clients. Here's Diana again.
5: They were probably the first lawyers to be so open about what they understood about the femicides in Juarez. And they started to mention that there were people getting away with murder.
3: But this resistance to the official narrative brings heat.
5: Mario became aware that he was being followed. He called his father on a cell phone and said to help me, help me.
3: Meanwhile, across the border in El Paso, Hardrick Crawford couldn't believe what he was seeing. And he was more determined than ever to do something about the crimes.
10: I'm stunned and amazed at the response of our colleagues in Mexico
3: to uh, an enormous crime. A mind-numbing crime. Hardrick couldn't intervene directly in the affairs of another sovereign nation, but in 2002, he visited the J. Edgar Hoover building in Washington, D.C. because he wants to get approval to keep digging from his boss. Robert
10: Mueller? Oh, yes, Director Robert Mueller. I was in the director's office on the seventh floor. We call it mahogany row, Um, all the mahogany tables. And I expressed concern that my uh, outspoken activities, my um, interaction with my uh, colleagues on the other side of the border, I was concerned that I was doing something that they did not find to be in the best interest of the FBI. And Deputy Director Bruce Gebhardt said, Drick, just keep doing what you're doing. And the director just nodded
3: affirmatively. It wasn't long before Hardrick Crawford clearly understood that something even darker was happening in Juarez, than his initial hypothesis about a cross-border serial killer. And although the bus drivers were in jail, the true killers remained free. So as the investigations continued on both sides of the border, so did the killings of women in Juarez. In our next episode, death threats against investigators graduate into outright murder. I'm Oz And I'm
4: Monica Ortiz-Uribe. See you next time. Forgotten, The Women of Juarez is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz-Uribe.
3: And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikida. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norvell. Sound editing by Julian Weller and Jacopo Penzo. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Recording assistance this episode from Melissa Kaplan. Music by Leonardo Heibloom and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman.
4: Special thanks to Cecilia Bailly and Minerva Canto, whose research and reporting contributed to this episode.